when you hear the word intentional, what does it mean to you? Uh, with purpose, purposeful. When I'm being intentional, I'm doing something for a specific reason to derive a specific outcome. And again, I'll go back to our very beginning. I'm a strategic planner. You know, the reason I get where I, I want to be is because I know where I'm going. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Well, have you gotten an out of the blue offer from a private equity firm lately? Um, well, I can tell you what, when I give that, <laughs> when I ask that question in front of audiences, when I do the presentations these days, like 85 or 90% of everybody's hands goes up, yet no one knows what is truly behind the offers. Where are these private equity firms coming from? How are they structuring their offers, their funds, et cetera? So we are going to be unpacking all of that. But right before we do, and I, I introduce you to the guest, Two, uh, two or three announcements. One is if you have not checked out the Intentional Growth Financial Assessment, go do that. It's in the, the link is in the show notes. It's also at arcona.io. We have 23 questions. You don't need your financials. You get a score about how you organize these four foundational categories of your financials. So that way you can project out the value of your business and your distributions and working capital and cash and everything five years in advance, just like a private equity firm would. So we're going to be talking a lot about private equity on this episode. But if you wanted to run your business like a financial asset like they do, and you use your numbers to grow wealth like they do, go check out the assessment on the results page. Pat and I show what good looks like. So we're breaking down an example and you'll be able to see what is possible if you organize them the right way. Second update is this show is on YouTube, so go check it out if you want to watch uh, my ugly mug and the guest talk on, on YouTube, and that the last three months are now out there along with a bunch of little clips. And then the third update is we have an intentional growth virtual cohort coming up in May. So we got a couple months out, but what it is, it is four calls over four weeks, max 10 participants, and it's normally 2000 bucks, but we have a coupon for 250 bucks off that is in the show notes. If you want to check it out, you can apply to join the group. Otherwise, you can hire us to do one-on-one -on -one coaching along with the training. So who is on the show today? His name is Adam Coffey. Adam was a CEO, board member, best-selling author, Forbes Business Council member, and an acclaimed guest speaker. Adam is an inspiring and authentic leader who creates high-performance cultures and drives transformative growth and has been using the vehicle of private equity to make a real big splash and impact over the last 21 years. He has had the honor of serving as president and CEO of three national private equity-backed service companies each in different industries. Two of the three companies he built achieved enterprise values of over a billion dollars. And throughout his career, Adam has a proven track record of it, achieving notable outcomes for stakeholders. His average exit has returned a four times uh, multiple of invested capital, which Adam is gonna unpack in the show today. Adam is an active member, uh, active member, mentor, excuse me, to MBA students and is a regular and favorite guest speaker at UCLA. Uh, Adam has considered himself a blue-collared CEO, which uh, based on the industries and his conversations, it's it's just really authentic and I love it. He's got a diverse background and he's led several commercial and industrial service businesses as a licensed general contractor, a pilot, former GE executive, an alumni of the UCLA Anderson Executive Program, and a vet of the U.S. Army. And he's written two books, one called The Private Equity Playbook, which we're going to be talking a lot about today, and the other one called The Exit Strategy Playbook. And I'll tell you what, 
all that being said, Adam is a down-to-earth guy that came from corporate America and found private equity over 21 years ago. And he used that to create an insane amount of wealth for his investors and the private equity general partners and the business owners that he was buying in order to roll up. And so he talks about buy and build strategies at a different level that we've talked about in the past where there's SBA loans. This is the private equity model. And I think it's so insightful when you're listening in about what is going on behind the scenes of private equity. What questions do you need to ask? And he talks a lot about the the capital and how the capital works and the desires and intentions that the cap, the, that the investments need for the investors and how that impacts private equity in the operations of the business owners who are selling and then the, the investment thesis and strategies of the overall portfolio companies and how we're tying operations and capital together and then how that yields outcomes for everybody. If you're listening to this, you're going to be able to have better questions to ask the private equity firms if you're getting those out of the blue offers. If you wanted to know as much as you possibly can about this topic, don't forget to check out the intentional growth training. But otherwise, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Adam. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Adam, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, Good to be here. Uh, you and I were just chatting and I just said, all right, let's just stop because we got to hit record and uh, we got too much fun stuff that we want to capture on the airwaves here. So why don't you just take us from the top, Adam? I, you've got a couple books, you've got a couple decade experience running companies, buying and selling, but take us to, from the top of what you were just doing for me because I think that'll lay the groundwork and we're going to have plenty to cover over the next hour. Sure. Happy to, Ryan. Listen, so, you know, when I meet people for the first time, generally, you know, I kind of tell them there's four things about my life that that put me where I, I am today. First is uh, service in the military, uh, served in the army. Uh, military taught me something about discipline, teamwork, leadership, really great foundation to build a, a, a career on. I, I remember the tagline back in, the, in those days. You know, I, I don't want to date myself too much. Right. But back <laughs> in the day. When Ronald Reagan was president, you know, the, the tagline for the military was it was a great place to start. And from a, a career perspective, if I wasn't there, I'm not here, you know, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. military, I, I like to think, you know, taught me a lot about teamwork, leadership, discipline. Uh, number two, engineering. Always had a technical background as a kid, ham radio operator, building Heath kits, you know, and, and just, uh, you know, always following, you know, and, and paying attention to the latest technology. In the military, I was working on classified air defense radar and missile systems. And, you know, that led me to a career in engineering. And I tell people engineering made me a meticulous planner. I'm also a pilot. You know, you don't take off without knowing where you're going, what the winds, you know, are like on the route. Mm-hmm. What are your backup airports if you have problems? You know, I mean, it's, so you, you spend a lot of time on the ground before you ever get in a cockpit and, and take off and go into the air. You know, so, you know, engineering, being a pilot, you know, kind of led me to be a a meticulous planner. You know, what does that mean from a business perspective? I don't ever shoot from the hip. You know, I I, I could go off camera for like five seconds and I could show you two strategic plans. You know, when I took over different companies, you know, there's always a plan in place. 
you know, great recessions happen, pandemics happen. Uh, you always have to be flexible and adaptable. But at the same time, you know, you, you, you generally, if you have a destination in mind and you have a, a, a charted course to get there, you're going to be more successful than someone who wakes up every morning and has no idea where they're headed. Just so, take out, take the plane off and we'll figure out where we Yeah. So, so engineering, you know, and, and being a pilot made me a meticulous planner. And, and then third, GE. So I was at GE during what I call the Camelot era. And, and so you kind of have to go back in time. This is before tech companies. This is before the internet really had permeated culture the way that it has today. Uh, GE was the world's most admired company. Jack Welsh is at the helm. You know, he was there for 20 years. I was there for the last 10. And, you know, by that time, you know, you're in the moniker Neutron Jack. You know, a lot of the changes that were going on within GE happened kind of in that first 10 years that he was there. The second 10 years was all about growth. And it was all about, you know, blowing out, you know, targets. And it was a really special place. The 10 years I was there, stock split every two and a half years. And, and I thought as a young guy, stock split every two and a half years, money rained from the sky. Hey, isn't this a great place to be? And, you know, and, and so GE, I credit with teaching me how to run a business. I started as an engineer. I crossed over into management. I did the, the GE Crotonville leadership experience you know, learn from the, the world's most admired companies, business leaders, you know, how to run a, run a business. I, I became a turnaround guy within GE. And so I credit GE with giving me the business acumen and skills to go with the meticulous planning, with the discipline and leadership. You put all that together. And then that prepared me for the fourth thing, which is 21 years. Uh, for 21 years, I have been a, a, a president and CEO uh, working with uh, eight different private equity sponsors, building three different platform companies. And, you know, talk about experience. Boy, as, as a guy in my 30s, you know, being a CEO first time, you know, building a, a business, boy, you make every mistake in the world, right? So 21 <laughs> years of experience taught me a lot, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've had many exits during that time period. I think my worst exit was a, a 2x multiple of invested capital. My best was nine times, kind of my career batting average, if you will, is four and a half. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's been a, it's been a, a great ride. Um, you know, if you look at those three companies, one was a medical services company, it was grown, it was sold to Berkshire, became a division of Aramark. Next one was a commercial laundry company. Uh, went from family owned and operated to billion dollar business, went from a 0% market share in Canada to 90% market share in wow. Canada, you know, number one in Canada by a, a long margin, number two in the US, um, but, you know, billion dollar enterprise. And then the third one was a, an HVAC and, and commercial refrigeration company. And and again, you know, it, these were buy-in builds. I was doing, you know, mergers and acquisitions. You know, I, I bought 34 companies you know, when I was building one, I bought 23. When we were building another, you know, two of them hit hit billion dollar, you know, valuations. And, and so, you know, it's 21 years of experience kind of doing the private equity thing. And, and to tell the truth, you know, when I started, I didn't know what private equity was. I, I was chasing <laughs> yeah. money and title, you know, first chance to be a president, you know, first chance to, to, to get some serious, you know, potential ownership and stock action. And I didn't know what private equity was at the time. You know, that wasn't what was motivating me. It was money and title. And, mm -hmm. and so learned a lot over the last 21 years as private equity has grown. Yeah, from, no kidding. You know, 21 years ago, 
you know, there were fewer than a thousand private equity firms and there was, you know, uh, you could measure assets under management in the hundreds of billions. Uh, but you roll tape forward 21 years, there's 6,000 PE firms and there is over 5 trillion in uh, assets under management. There's 1.5 trillion in committed capital right this yeah, not, second not, while we're talking, looking to go buy stuff. You know, looking for stuff to buy. PE has permeated every part of the business world at this point. And, you know, this is going to be the first year in 2022 where more than 50% of all M&A activity on the planet is going to involve private equity on one side of the table or the other or both. And, and so private equity has just exploded in the 21 years that, that I've been working with with PE firms. So that's kind of my, you know, world, you know, where, yeah. where I came from. I love it. And we're, we're going to be able to unpack that. And so Adam, there's a, for the listeners in, I unpacked like all the deal structures and how private equity works in this podcast with Sonny Vanderbeck. He's got a conscious capitalism fund. And so we went through all of the structures between, between the general partners, the sponsors, the platforms, how it all works. So listeners can go check that out. And what I want to do, so that way we can kind of park over like the mechanics we've covered, but I want to go into like that experience that you had, like covering the ground, like what, what is the strategies behind private equity? So like, you know, taking the different ventures that you have, like walking through you, when you say eight different sponsors, let's talk about like the sponsors, what that means. And then what was the strategy like, let's go back to the, the first original gig that you had. So what was yeah. the pitch? What was the pitch to you? And then, you know, using your, the, the military, the engineering and the GE combo, what did you then build the plan for? And how, how did, how did the private equity partnership impact your plan? And how did that, like, what did it look like? Sure. So let's just kind of, let's start, you know, from a, from an entrepreneur's perspective, you know, I look at private equity as a tool. So they look at me as a tool too. So, you know, you as in like a, uh, as a CEO leader, right? That's, that yeah. You so if, yep. if you think about each, you know, each need, you know, so a private equity firm is in the business of deploying capital, buying companies, investing in companies, and they're going to owe their limited partners, you know, a return. And, you know, let's, let's be honest, you know, if they just put their money in a, in a stock market fund, you know, they're going to get about a 10% return on average over a 30 year period. That's kind of what mm -hmm. the market's been doing, you know, and, and it's, uh, it, you got to do a whole hell of a lot better than that. If you're a private equity firm and you want people to keep giving you capital. And so and generally, it distort, I'm sorry, go ahead. And, and locking it up for a period of time. Right? Uh, it's you're, you're, you're locking it up for 10 years. People, you know, minimum investment, about 5 million, you know, the fund life is about 10 years. You could go as long as 12 years without any liquidity. You're committing the capital. You're sending money as they're buying companies, you know, and, and at the end of the day, it, it, it's like, you know, you got to do a whole lot better than that 10% that kind of average return because you have no liquidity. And the mm -hmm. expectation is there's higher returns for no liquidity and time. You know, mm -hmm. the, the major investors are, lim you know, the limited partners are pension funds, their university endowments or very wealthy families that can tie up large amounts of capital for an extended period of time. And so a typical PE return profile is three to four times. You know, you invest a buck, you're looking for, you know, three to four bucks back in return. You know, and so how do you do that? Well, private equity buys a company, I become a growth tool. I help them get the return they need to feed their limited partners to, to get them to invest more money in the next fund. 
you know, and, and so, but I, as a guy building a company, oftentimes have multiple hold periods. So private equity shops are very disciplined. You have people who buy at this size and they take companies to this size. Mm-hmm. Then the next group of private equity guys come in and they go from this size to this size. And the inflection points are kind of like zero to $15 million of EBITDA, 15 to 50, 50 to 100, 100 you know, to 200, 250 and up. You know? And mm-hmm. that's the pyramid of private equity that you're climbing. So if you use one of my companies as an example, the laundry company, I ran it for 13 years, four months, couple days, maybe a few hours. And <laughs> during that time period, I had three different sets of shareholders and they all came and went. What the constant was, was me and the leadership team, you know, that was building this billion dollar company. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I see private equity as a tool to help me navigate as I'm you know, building a company. They see me as a tool to hit a, a return threshold. And that's kind of the symbiotic relationship that that creates, you know, the, the private equity world. And, you know, if, then if you, if, you, if you take it from that perspective and you say, OK, what does private equity need to do to achieve their their kind of style of returns? Well, typically you have to go into a company. Now, the, the, the biggest pool of capital in private equity is in the vertical called buyout funds. So these are these are these are private equity funds that buy companies. They become platforms, or you know, uh, 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 call it the crown jewels of a specific fund, and then they're going to grow those businesses over a period of about three to seven years during the ten-year life of the fund, and then they're going to sell them. So in order to hit the kind of returns, you need a thirty percent compound annual growth rate. Let's talk about that for just a second. Yeah, I was going to say, I would go dive right in, man. <laughs> it's a big number, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you take all three companies that I built in 21 years, all of them had been in existence for 40 years prior to my arrival. Wow. So these are not startups. We're not talking venture capital, where if you go from a dollar of profit to $2 of profit, <laughs> you had 100% growth. Yeah, right, right. We're talking about businesses that have been around for decades and they're in mature industries. And as a result, they're probably growing on average when I get there at about 6%, four to 6%, if you're lucky, six to 8%, but that's it. And think about 10% in in investing, there's this thing called the law of 72. If you are getting a 10% return, which is the stock market average over 30 years, it's gonna take 7.2 years to double in size. Okay, that's a 2x multiple of invested capital. If you're a PE firm and you're doing 2x, you better be a a multi-billion dollar infrastructure fund that's buying toll roads because if you're a buyout fund that's doing growth, you're out of business. Mm -hmm. You you need a 4x return. At 4x, that's 30%. At 30% compound annual growth rate, a company doubles in size in 2.8 years, 2.7 years, something like that. And it triples in size, you know, in uh, in four years, four point two years, and it'll get to quadruple the size in just over five years. And to do that, you're talking about taking a forty year old sleepy company that's going mm-hmm. at six to eight percent, and then boom, mm-hmm. bending the curve, achieving and sustaining a thirty percent growth rate for five years or more, because you can't sell a company that's not growing. So it's got to hit that thirty percent ramp and keep going. It's got to keep going because mm-hmm. when that private equity firm exits in five years, 
the next guy is going to want it to keep going at 30% for another five years. Mm-hmm. Now, that's really hard to do. And so I, I, I think that bending of the curve is where investments are either made or broken mm-hmm. from a, a mm-hmm. private equity and an entrepreneurial perspective. Mm-hmm. Founders transitioning to private equity just got a big payday and they're like, woo, you know, can I slow down now? Hell no. Now you got to actually amp it up, take it just, up a couple of notches. You just grabbed and, the rocket ship, man. And, and Adam, I want to I interject here because you, you laid out the groundwork for the the, the investment thesis, like why these PE firms would want want to do or well, need to do this because they raise sure. the capital. And then I want to make a couple of comments and then I want to tie together your like the management roles and the the alignment with management and the investors and then the buyer the buyers that you're buying out too. But let's put a pin in that for a second because a couple of comments on when you, I think about just you had mentioned some macro trends and like you you great overview on some of the big things like the couple of trillion dollars that are sitting there waiting to be spent and uh, like when you think about why this is necessary i think it's so important for the listeners because that you can't get returns anywhere else so like you know you talk about yale endowment and their allocation from private equity over the last 20 years that you've been doing this or anybody it's like we can't get yield anywhere else so it's going here which is driving all this activity and i think that's so in with that context that you gave of like it's just math, man. Like these are investors that are giving yeah. money to other people that want more money back. Really that simple. But when I think what, where I see it, Adam, and I'm curious along your journey. So you're the hired gun as a CEO that comes in for this first one. And you've got the mandate of the, like you said, the 30% can't compounded annual growth rate to get the money back to them. I see so many times people end up on the show with regrets because someone, like you said, just sold, they want to be done. And they, there was this big black box. So it was all this misalignment of expectations after that, right? It was like, oh, here's my legacy. Here's my baby. I didn't know we're going to have to grow like that or cl- cut costs. So all of these things happened after the fact that I was not aware of makes me upset and up, you know, whatever it is. Or there's like, so there's all these alignments of the the company and the, what the owner wants, their involvement and need, and then what the actual mandates are. I don't know, speak to that. Like when you were talking about buying, you know, you got all these companies you've bought. How do you align the, the mathematical needs of the fund and the PE firm with the buy, or with the sellers and then you as the, the driving force behind the entire plan? So, so, you know, I first start with education because what you just pointed out, you know, is, I, I, is, is the reason I wrote two books and they were both number <laughs> one bestsellers. You know, it, it's it's. Private equity is a literal black box to most people. They've heard the term. They know a little bit about VC because they watch Shark Tank on TV and they kind of think that's cool. But but venture capital is a small piece of the overall world of, of private equity. And, and frankly, most venture capital funds don't return better than a 2x you know, kind, mm-hmm. kind of multiple of invested capital. Everyone's looking for unicorns you know, and, and home runs. And that's a tough place to put your money to work. You know, I, I, I leave that to these big endowments that are looking for the next Uber, you know, mm-hmm. or the next, you know, absolute home run, you know, they can afford to take those kind of risks. Common person, you know, typically shouldn't be taking those kinds of risks. But when I, when I look at it, kind of the world of private equity and how it's grown, you know, I, 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 we talked about this off camera, you know, I, I think if I set up a little table 
you know, outside, I'm in Dallas. If I, if I was at the DFW airport and every person that walked by that looked like a business person, if I had them take a basic 10 question quiz on private equity, I think the vast majority of people would fail and mm-hmm. they just don't understand the concepts. And so go back to your, you know, your, your thesis mm-hmm. and your question, you know, you're an entrepreneur or a business owner, you know, someone who's been running a company for a long period of time. You're you're getting all these phone calls from private equity because there's one point five trillion in cash capital committed looking to buy something right now, this very second. Why why we're talking and, you know, you're getting the calls. You don't really know what it is. You partner with it. And then there's a misalignment or, uh, you know, a a disconnect. And it's because people don't understand what the basics of private Mm -hmm. equity are, what it is, what it needs. And, And so the private equity playbook, when when I wrote that. You know, it's still, you know, if you go on Amazon right now and look at it, it's like number two in a bunch of different business categories. It's three and a half years old. It still hits number one in, in categories. Even private equity firms are ordering that book, you know, in quantity to give to incoming associates or to, mm-hmm. to, to give to, to entrepreneurial prospects because it doesn't do anybody any good when there is that misalignment. You're so right that it's simple math and it's simple you know, investment, you know, simple investment thesis. So the more an entrepreneur knows about what private equity is and then what the needs are and what's going to happen to them on the journey, you know, the the better position they are to, to be successful. And I think right now when you just happen upon entrepreneurs who sold businesses to, to private equity, half of them will say it was horrible, never work with them guys again. You know, and the other half would say, oh, I had a good outcome. It was great. It was fun. And it's it's hit or miss because it's left to chance because people don't know what a good partner looks like or what their needs are or what their partner's needs are. And, and so you have, you know, kind of a 50 percent hit or miss rate with 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 people. Oh, and I, I want to comment on that, Adam, because I think you're that concept applies for ESOPs, family transitions, partnership sure. buyouts. Because like, I mean, the whole point of the title of the podcast is intentional growth, like do it on purpose. Right? And so yes. many people are just like wake up and randomly like, oh, that might make sense. And then they let things unfold and it's all just happenstance. And so like going back to like, you know, with all these companies that you bought and sold, what did you what, explain? Like it maybe hypothetically, if I was a potential buyer, or no, I'm, I'm sorry. I was a potential seller, and you're having yeah. a conversation with me, and you're sitting here going, "Okay, like, and I like, what was that process like trying to understand that alignment?" Sure. So, so first of all, you're talking about alignment. So let's just define alignment real quick. The way yeah. that I do it, you know, when 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 I'm doing a buy-in build, and I'm taking twenty some odd entrepreneurs who all, <laughs> by the way, are successful multimillionaires because I made them multimillionaires by buying their companies, you know, (laughs) and and these are folks who've never had a saddle on, they've never had a boss. And I I, I say, part of my, my, my role is I'm, I'm a den mother. You know, I'm one of my superpowers is I got to take 23 very successful multimillionaires. Most of them are going to be decamillionaires because I just gave them 20, $30 million to buy their businesses. And now I got to get them all aligned on the same page, <laughs> singing from the same hymnal, doing the same dance, you know, over the next five year period. So what and I, their employees and cultures. Sure. Right. So, <laughs> yes, not easily done. <laughs> yeah, right. Easier you know, said and, than done. And, and boy, we could do another podcast on buy and build because buy and build is only successful when you spend a lot of time up front, really focusing on knowing what good looks like 
and only buying good companies and putting good companies together with other good companies that culturally fit, that strategically fit, you know, the thesis. And you know what? If you encounter the cowboy that can't can't you can't put a saddle on, walk away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Walk away because one bad deal. You know, Ty Cobb was the best baseball player ever. He batted four for something, which means six out of ten times he struck out. When you're doing a buy-in build, you got to bat 980, 990 or better. You can only afford to have one sideways acquisition out of 20 or 30 because it'll zap so much strength from your leadership team. Takes so long to fix, it's not worth it. But let's go back to alignment. So what, what I do is... A portion of the sale includes a rollover investment in the parent company. And so by doing that, I hate earnouts, by the way. So er, er, earnouts, oh, wow. you, you know, I, I personally hate earnouts. Earnouts, mm-hmm. the, the joke, you know, amongst PE guys is earnouts uh, are a lawsuit waiting to happen. The only question is who's the plaintiff. So in order, <laughs> I never want to buy a company and then be out of alignment with it where their success may not be my success. Mm-hmm. It needs to be our success. There is a time and place for earnouts. You know, you can do them, especially when it's a, a platform or it's a new company in a new region and there's not going to be other activity around it for a period I think of it's time. Just, just a comment on it. I think it's just, in, it's refreshing coming from a private equity, you know, person because so many times, you know, the the earnout is used for ill in, ill intent. You know what I mean? Sure. And, and, and again, it depends. It's usually coming from the other side because they're convoluting the deal structure. And so, like, it's just it was just refreshing. I just wanted to call it yeah. out. Like, so hey, I don't like earnouts. You know, uh, you know. First of all, I've held every job you can hold in a service company for thirty five years. You know, I started my career. I drove a truck. You know, I was on call. I worked nights. You know, holidays, weekends. You know, uh, I was an engineer working on CAT scanners in hospitals, and that work happens twenty four hours a day, mostly in the middle of the night on a bad winter night when you're driving <laughs> across northern <laughs> Michigan or something. So, you know, in in my world. Alignment is key. So a part of the sale has to include a rollover. That rollover investment in the parent is then when all 23 entrepreneurs or all 30 entrepreneurs sell a business, get a payday, and a portion rolls forward, they're sticking around. You know, I've done it where they stick around. I've done it where they don't. But when they're sticking around, I use that rollover investment because we're now all shareholders of one entity. And so shouldn't matter whether it's your success or your success, it's our collective success. And so, you know, I, I call it it the, the former owners alumni club, you know, people would literally get jackets, you know, it's kind of think of, think of some club from 30 years ago where they gave you a membership certificate, you know, some swag, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would create kind of the, the former owners alumni club. These are people who were very successful entrepreneurs. Only 7% of all people who start a business ever hit a million in revenue. Only about 4% of those ever hit 10 million in revenue. You know, to be people who've been paid 20 to $30 million for businesses that they've built, these are, these are all very successful people. And to align them, we become shareholders in the mothership, you know, in the holding company, you know, that is the, 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 the strategic platform that's acquiring the businesses. Um, and, and then I talk about the power of rollover investing. You know, and and I, you know, I typically go back to one story. I'll call the guy John Doe. His really name, you know, his re- real name is Sam. Hey, Sam. I'm sure you'll hear this. You know, <laughs> but, but you know, so I buy a company. You know, that entrepreneur, I pay 16.4 million for that company. He rolls over 4.4 million forward into the mothership. That's his rollover investment. He takes 12 million home. You know, diversifies assets. Still has enough skin in the game to make life interesting. 
you know, goes about his business running his company. I buy seven more companies, put them together. We sell for a four times multiple of invested capital. Well, 4.4 times four equals 17.6. Well, the first time he sold his company, it was 16.4. Second bite of the apple was 17.6. You know, my thesis in life is always to roll over enough so that the modeled return gives you a bigger second payday than the first. Mm -hmm. So here's a guy who, if I told him, if you could take all 16.4 million home and not roll over anything, would you? Well, of course, I'm not running the company anymore. You know, I, you know, it's like, I'm, I want <laughs> yeah, all my money out. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but I recognize that in order to get that, I had to roll over. And, you know, so I did. Well, what do you think of rollover now after you just got paid 17.6 million for what, what was 4.4 million rolled over? And, you know, you'd have been happy walking away, you know, and taking 16.4 home. But now you got 29.6 million because you got two paydays minus the 4.4 million rollover. Now, what do you think? Oh, this rollover crap is great, man. This is, this is, this is, <laughs> everybody should do it. Yeah. I'm going to go buy a winery. See you later, Adam. But Hey, you know, I'm going to roll over 5 million more for your next bite of the apple. And, uh, you know, bring me, you know, bring me another four times multiple invested capital. That one will be 20. That'll be bigger than the second, bigger than the first. And by God, all told, you know, I'll be looking at, I don't even remember what the math was. It was like $59 million or $57 million, you know, total. But it's like, hey, rollover investing, you know, here's what I tell entrepreneurs. You are working with the world's most sophisticated business people on the planet. And it's a professional sport played at the highest level. It pisses a lot of people off because of the intensity about it. But the fact remains that these are folks who historically beat the market by at least a 2x multiple, you know, over over an extended period of time, you know, and as a result of that, you get to as an entrepreneur make an investment and kind of grab the coattails of these private equity dudes, you know, and and roll right along with them to get future paydays. And so uh, I and tell people, it- "Hey, you know, this is this is this is the brilliant part of private equity." done right when you're an entrepreneur that understands how it works, what your role is, why you have to bend this growth curve, you know, and when I'm at the helm, because I've been doing this for so long, you know, I spend an inordinate amount of time making sure that the entrepreneurs that I work with understand the different facets of this, Mm -hmm. what the risks are, what the rewards are. And so generally speaking, I get credibility from, you know, the blue collar guys in trucks, who started businesses and became decamillionaires because I used to be one and, and I've, I've done the same. I've walked and chewed the same dirt they have, mm-hmm. different industries, but, but same similar story. And I've been doing this for so long and have such a long track record of it that, that it's easy to, to kind of buy into the thesis. And then as you're doing a buy-in build, you know, when you're buying 30 companies, well, you know, the guy who's 21, he can talk to 20 people who came before him, you know, or her, and and they can understand what their own personal journey was like and kind of validate the the, the reality. So well, and, and that because that was great. And I want to continue pulling on the thread of alignment because you did a great job of understanding how to align the, the capital needs and the growth needs of all the money, which I think, you know, uh, curious on your your comments on this this concept that I I don't know if it's too simple, Adam, but like, okay, so when I think about like very, very successful entrepreneurs, they they understand finance is like a Venn diagram for the people listening. And there's finance, 
and then there's operations and then there's like the in-between of the Venn diagram where you understand operations and finance. Sure. And that's truly, cause I watch like when I hear like the horror stories, it's a lot of, you know, spreadsheet junkies in private equity that have never actually ran a business. So they have no value add to the operators of the business. And it's more just cut your way to returns, which we, you and I both know is not possible. So going back to alignment, I'm curious on like, cause you can have alignment on the numbers. And, and, and also with those numbers, I've watched so many people with those projections, like I could build projections that look awesome, but it, then it comes down to the operational execution. Yeah. Absolutely. So I know you, you mentioned your military and the GE and some of these things. So like explain the alignment on the operations and then the vision of these businesses. Cause let's say you, you were talking to me and I was that person I'm like, okay, fine. I'll roll four. I'm going to sell for 12 for capital. Great. But now I'm not going to have a complete control of the operations. And in order to get that four times invested capital, you got to do your shit right, Adam. <laughs> so like, yes. how are we going to align operationally and the strategic vision of the operations? How did you guys go about doing that? Well, so so I used to periodically, you know, for, first of all, I think transparency is the way to do that. So as a CEO, always been very transparent. You know, if I got 3,000 employees, all 3,000 employees know how much EBITDA we got, what our revenue is, and where we're going, and when I'm going to kick the current shareholders out and bring in the next set, and when I'm going to get to the next bite of the apple. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs are, are secretive about, about these things. I'm not. You know, got and it. it's like the more I can educate the workforce, you know what? 3,000 guys in trucks may not have a clue what the hell EBITDA is, but by God, they know how much we got. And they know when I get to a certain level that we're going to sell, you know, and bring in new shareholders. And they understand the difference between private companies and the need to have changes in control every five to seven years versus a public company, which is bought and sold every day, you know, on, on the stock mm -hmm. market. So liquidity versus non-liquidity. So I'm transparent as hell. You know, got I communicate, over-communicate throughout the journey. I try to educate line employees you know, executives, you know, and, and by the way, you know, typically when you're working with a private equity firm, there is a pool of capital that's set aside to give incentive to, you know, members of the leadership team, you know, call it, call it equity incentives to, you know, to do a good job and hit those returns. Private equity, when things are working well, they're the most generous people on the planet, you know, and they share that wealth freely with leadership teams. And so you're able to create generational wealth as an employee without ever having started a business, owned a business, run a business by being an executive. And, and that's why, you know, in, in the first book, I, I target two groups of people. It's the it's the founders and the and the and the transitioning owners, but it's also the mid-level to high level, call it Fortune 500 executives who are being recruited to come out and run, you know, mm -hmm. a, a private equity backed adventure. So the more you understand private equity, the better off you are. And like anything in life, when there's 6,000 firms, there's good, there's bad, there's ugly, and mm -hmm. there's great, you know? And so, you know, I think for me personally, I've learned so much over 21 years. You know, if someone approaches me today and says, you know, this is, you know, come talk to me about being CEO, you know, I'm going to do some industry research first. You know, if you're going to do a buy and build, I need a fragmented industry, you know? And, and so mm -hmm. here's some, here's a trick, you know, here, here's, here's some private CEO magic, you know, golden nugget. 
a lot of people listening to this podcast aren't probably going to be old enough to remember these things called phone books, but they used to exist. And there was white. <laughs> Wait, come on, we t- I was at a conference last week, Adam, where people were talking about party lines. So, okay, okay. So, so I call it the phone book test. If you want to know if an industry is fragmented, go to a oh, yeah. phone book in every city in the country and go to the yellow pages, look at A, B, C, pick your number. And if you see the same kind of companies listed, hmm. you know, let's say dry cleaners, landscape, mm-hmm. you know, contractors, electricians, plumbers, HVAC guys, you know, just pick anything in a phone book, insurance, you know, agencies. If you don't see the same name brand, but you see different names in every phone book around the country, that's your clue that there's probably thousands of businesses in that industry doing the same thing. That fragmentation is the key magic to buy and build. Because when I'm buying 30, 40 companies, I'm buying small businesses that trade at a small multiple, Mm -hmm. and I'm building a much larger business that's going to trade at a much larger multiple. And the arbitrage between what I buy at and what I sell at creates the capital or the profit, you know, that drives the returns for the private equity guys. So good classic example I once ran an industry where I bought more than 20 companies. The average multiple I paid was five times. And so I'm paying five times EBITDA for 20 companies. Each one's 2 million in size, an average, 2 million in EBITDA. I buy 40 million of EBITDA for five times, four times five, 200. It's 200 million is what it costs. The banks would lend me up to five times debt leverage because my cash flow would service mm-hmm. five times debt. And since I'm buying it five times, that means I spent $200 million of someone else's money to buy 20 companies, each with $2 million of EBITDA, each at five times. When I sell that business, I sold it for 13 times. 13 times 40 is $520 million. I have to pay the banks back $200 million in debt that I borrowed. And on zero invested capital, I had $320 million of shareholder profit. That is the magic of buy and build, and it's the arbitrage between buying and selling, and it requires fragmented industry. That's like number one. Yeah, and 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 I see this all the time now, and especially with the the frothy marketplace. We got a client that just sold for about sixty million bucks. You know, just take hypothetically, let's say it was six and a half million in EBITDA. They stacked it on top of thirty-five million in EBITDA from a private equity firm, and they immediately they sold the company, the whole portfolio within sixty days. Sure. So they literally were owned by that PE firm only by sixty days. That's that perfect multiple arbitrage. And Adam, what I'm seeing as a potential freight train, and again, I might be way off on this, but is the beautiful math that you just described is why there's now 6,000 private equity firms and 2 yes. trillion in capital. What I'm seeing and I'm curious on your is on your comments on this is that the beautiful math is not as easy anymore cuz you can't find good deals all the time that are at good valued price cuz I watch prices right now and I'm like I would hate to be the PE firm that's paying that amount of money for that shit. Yeah. And then what the hell are they going to do cuz what you just did was straight line of 2 millions of EBITDA, you know, millions of EBITDA on top of one is one, that's out 13 instead of a five. But what I'm watching now is these spreadsheet junkies who are good at raising money and good at the storytelling that you just said, like, hey, people, you paid 30% more than you should have. You don't yeah. know shit about running a company. 
Now what are you going to do? And you still owe 20% rate of return to your to your investors. So you know, it, 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 you're bringing up the question of private <laughs> hit equity. A, hit a chord. And, and I got to tell you, every year people say the same thing. And every year more money keeps pouring in. So it's like it's a bubble that never bursts, you know, but but people talk about it all the time. So so great observation. You know, let's talk a little bit about that. So multiples are really high right now. You know, a, a company I ran that once traded for eight times, then traded for, for 13 times, now trades for 20 times. <laughs> multiple arbitrage is is built in used to be if 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 the market stayed flat you would get step ups you know in mm -hmm. in multiple arbitrage at those inflection points that 50 million yeah. 50 million 100 million you know and you would gain you know two or three turns each time but now because of the competition and all the money chasing the same deal prices have gone up and so during the whole period you're also getting multiple arbitrage on those call it different inflection points and so the whole industry is kind of walking up while you're also doing buy and build and building arbitrage and so it's uh, it's beautiful it's beautiful math when it works well but what I, I see is the problem is that if you're paying too much for something then either returns have to moderate or something has to change and and i call it active management so when I was a CEO sitting on a bunch of boards, I can honestly tell you, and I'll tell it this way, that way no one knows which one I'm talking about. But of all <laughs> the people who sat on my boards that were put there by private equity folks, only one person ever added any value to me as a shareholder or as a, a CEO, you know, mm -hmm. building a business. And what I see is I think they were really there for the limited partners. You know, look, you're giving me a bunch of money. I got all these great folks who've got great titles and have great experiences, and they're watching over you know the hand house <laughs> where we're putting all the money to work. You can sleep good at night. Give me more money for my next fund, but they're not adding any value to me. And so I call it active management. You know, and and you know the PE firm needs to put more hands on to that company early, but not in a negative way. Right. You know, uh, you, you, someone like me who's either bringing a CEO coach mentality, you know, or a mentorship mentality or a buy and build mentality, or I know the industry, you know, whatever the the, the reasons are that I'm there, you know, I want to work with that CEO. And instead of seeing him once a quarter, you know, or talking on a phone once a month at a monthly review and then the obligatory dinner, shake hand, kiss baby, four hour board meeting the next morning and then run to the airport because, you know, I got to catch my flight to go to the next board meeting. You know, <laughs> I'm talking to my CEOs every week. I am in person with them every month. And I'm also doing the, the check the box stuff the PE guys need quarterly, you know, and, and what mm -hmm. have you. But it takes a lot more teamwork and active, right. you know, active help, you know, not in a threatening way, not in a pain in the ass way. You know, you talk about guys with spreadsheets. You know, PE is famous for asking a million questions and driving, you know, entrepreneurs insane because all they're doing is keep answering questions. I'm not running my business. I'm too busy giving you data, you know, and so you, you got to feed the needs of private equity. And oftentimes that means that a sophisticated CFO or a, a, an FP&A effort has to be put together. Um, but typically the way it works in private equity is if you're performing, you don't get help. Matter of fact, you get ignored because you're performing. <laughs> Right. And it's when you're not performing, you get a million questions and you get help. And you don't want help if you're running the business with private equity guys. But a lot of it goes back to just the basic understanding of the time element of, of bending the curve, mm -hmm. achieving a 30% growth rate early, 
And I think PE firms have been a little bit asleep at the switch, waiting too long to, to get out of the gates. And we need to be faster out of the gates, be focused on that inflection point immediately. Do we have the right people on the bus? You know, it, it, you know, do you know, boy, how about, the, invest- how about the, uh, how about the operational strategy, Adam? Cause like, I think about like the old private equity strategy. I mean, I, I don't know if you've, you've probably read uh, King of Capital. I love sure. that book. Um, I mean, yeah. it's just amazing, but it's, it's outlining the whole Mine's better. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yours is a playbook. Theirs is like, oh wait, how did Blackstone actually get to be? And I can't, yeah, I, it's a little. I, I'm going to digress for a second. Oh my God, would I have loved to have been them back in the day when it was Joy, just like yeah. shooting, shooting fish in a barrel? I mean, like, yes. oh my God. But the the old thesis of like you know just the financial modeling and the capital modeling, like I think to your point of like integrating the operational model and the active management. Yeah. What was you, your? You got thesis? three levers. There are only three levers. You know, now someone's going to immediately put a comment somewhere down here and say, no, Adam, there's like 50,000 levers. Okay, but there's three <laughs> major buckets. You know, when you think about a company, again, go back to the beginning, these companies have been in business for 40 years, right? So they're they're old, mature, growing at a slow pace. You got to get to 30% because that's the math. Just get out a calculator and go 1 times 1.3 times 1.3 times 1.3. You're looking for a 4X multiple. So if nothing else changes in, in the multiple, arbitration mm-hmm. or escalation, mm-hmm. you know, you got to hit 30% growth for five years, you know, to, to get to four X multiple of, of earnings. So you got three levers. I got growth, you know, organic growth. No, we're not talking about organic. We're not talking marijuana here. We're talking organic <laughs> growth. We're talking sell more of the stuff that the company is either product or service, you know, that they're providing sell more or sell more, you know, uh, sell the same amount at a higher price you know, et cetera. It's like there, there, there's levers within each. There's price, you know, there's quantity. And, you know, so organic growth normally, you know, so I'm looking for a 30% growth recipe in a business. Generally speaking, I can get organic growth to as high as maybe 12%, but okay. probably more probable it's going to be eight, nine, 10% organically. How am I going to do that? Strategic pivots. Maybe I'm going to tier my products and services. Think of Mercedes Benz. You know, you got a lot of money. They sell you an S class. What's S? Expensive. It's expensive Mercedes, <laughs> right? You know, and then if you can't afford the expensive one, they got an E class. What's the E? It's the economy version of the expensive Mercedes. And then if you just want Mercedes cachet, but you don't have any money, they sell you the C class. What's that? That's cheap. That's the cheap Mercedes. You can get one for 30 grand on the right time of month at the right time of year, you know, all stripped down. So, you know, people tier products and services, you know, FedEx on a service business, you know, they first originally started, it was next business day, you know, 1030. And then it was next afternoon, two day. Oh, hey, we got this 830 AM thing. Well, guess what? All of those packages are moving on the same damn truck on the same airplane at the same speed. They're just slowing down when you're getting it and charging you more for it when you get it quicker. You know, so, you know, tiering products and services, you know, uh, you know, making strategic pivots to find blue ocean or, or, or new mm-hmm. markets to sell into. You can do a lot of different things, but generally speaking, organic growth is one component. It includes price and you're looking to get it as high as you can. Once you do that, the next bucket is is expense. It's margin. You know, what we're talking about is a 30% growth, not in top line revenue. Private equity can care less about what's going on at the top. It's Amen. 30% growth at the EBITDA line, right? So EBITDA, you know, includes if you save a dollar in cost, 
that's a dollar or more profit, you know, at the EBITDA line. So margin improvement, this, you know, for me, this is redesign process. If I go into a, a business that's mature, a service business, I start asking why, why do we do the crazy stuff we do? Oftentimes it's a process that's been in place for 20 years. And someone says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I say, just because it isn't broke, doesn't mean it's efficient. Let's process map everything that we do. Let's find bottlenecks. Let's solve for bottleneck. Often for me, it means let's invest in technology to make workers more productive. And you know, that, that laundry company I ran, I had a 42% increase in employee productivity. You Holy take buckets. 42% increase in employee productivity from the top line to the EBITDA line. That's wow. millions, tens of millions of dollars in increased EBITDA. So margin improvement is a piece. Organic growth is a piece. And if you can't get to 30% and hold it with those two, then the third lever is buy and build. You know, there's got to be some merger acquisition activity to get you to that 30% compound annual growth rate. You know, little secret Wall Street doesn't give a damn whether you're growing at 30% because of mergers and acquisitions or because it's organic and it's margin improvement. You do have to have all three, though. You can't be a one-trick pony that's just growing because you're buying stuff, you know, because at mm -hmm, some point, mm -hmm. industries consolidate fully. And when they do, you know, if you don't have an organic growth story, you're in trouble. So mm -hmm. there's, there's a balance between all three of those components. But if you can improve you know your your margins while you're increasing your sales making strategic pivots tiering products and services getting a little more price upselling you know mcdonald's would you like a large fry you know with that is that a supersize you know whatever burger king it's like you know everybody everybody has the gimmick but that's what they're doing you know they're yep, they're, yep. They're, they're they're increasing the volume and, and and getting more price so it's organic it's margin improvement and then you've got sprinkle it in with mergers and acquisitions or, or buy and build. In totality, 30% growth rate. Got to hit it early because PE guys are paying too much and, mm -hmm. and, and they got to get instant ramp up. Here's an interesting thing. You know, last time I, I was running a company and I had sold it, we were to retooling for the next hold period. You know, we did kind of an evaluation. What are the five or six strategic things we're going to be focused on to add this kind of growth rate and sustain it, you know, from this point to this point? And kind of identified the top 20, 20, 25 people in the, in the business that we're going to be focused on that because as a CEO, that's where I'm going to spend my time is mm -hmm. with those 20 to 25 people. And guess what? In this particular case, after I just had a successful run, we identified that nine of the 20 positions were new. They were new oh. jobs that didn't exist in the last whole period where we just got a four times multiple of invested capital. Because the company had grown so much, we now had new needs in order to continue that growth mm -hmm. trajectory. And so sometimes it's not what you have, it's what you don't have that makes the mm -hmm. difference between you know, sustaining that 30% growth or missing it. And so I would say PE firms need to be more active at managing. And that doesn't mean be more annoying. That means be <laughs> a true partner to management yeah. and, and get them the help they need on their side. You know, the foot soldiers are going to help them be successful, get there early, get on that trajectory early and, you know, and monitor and sustain it. How did you like take that framework and then identify good targets to, to buy and build and, or bolt on. And two parts to that question, Adam, one is maybe it's more like how you handled the kind of different components, right? I kind of see it as 
you got the you might find a good business target that works with your thesis and the entrepreneur is a psychopath or got you know whatever yeah. you know whatever craziness that we all come with or just a lack of education or then the opposite of a good strategy in entrepreneur but maybe not that great of a business. How did you go through and like just judge whether it was worth your time and due diligence? Yeah. Or, or so having so when you're doing a buy and build, the most important thing you do up front before you ever talk to anybody is identify what good looks like. When you're a, a, a leadership team who's never done buy or build before, you start chasing shiny pennies. Every business you look at looks good. You see only the upside. You never see the risk or the downside. You know, it starts with strategy. What are we trying to accomplish in a buy and build? So for me, I, it's usually one of three strategies. I'm extending the geographic reach of the company I'm running. So maybe I started with a regional company and I want to build a national company. It's I'm building density in my existing markets because I'm a service business Having more stuff to service in a small geography is more catch of it's more efficient, more profitable, mm -hmm. you know, than than chasing your trucks driving halfway across the state to get to their next next service call. So density is important. And then third, creating those strategic pivots to find new, you know, new addressable markets or, um, it, you know, so I, an example I'll use when I got to the uh, refrigeration service company. It was doing about 90% refrigeration in grocery stores. Great. You know, it's been doing it for 40 years. It's good business. However, you know, it's uh, it's 90%. It's $4 billion addressable market. Well, let's do a couple strategic pivots. Let's add an HVAC arm because that takes the addressable market to 20 billion. And there's thousands of those. And, you know, so it opens up a new avenue of growth, both organically and also from a, a buy and build perspective. And it raises addressable market. Let's do another strategic pivot. Let's add professional services on top of that. Engineering, you know, and uh, and energy optimization. Because for my customers, what they spend in electricity is their single largest cost of doing mm -hmm. business. You know, if you own a grocery store, you spend more on electricity than you do on on people. You know, because keeping food cold 365 days a year, 24 hours a day is an expensive gig. You know, <laughs> so being energy efficient. And you know, today you walk down the aisle at Target. And the cases are turning on as you're walking. And as you look back, they're turning off as you're walking, you know, as you're passing, you know. And so it's all of these different things to try to save energy costs. Um, and so, you know, it's making my strategic pivots, doing the Mercedes Benz, you know, or FedEx, you know, kind of routines. Um, and, and then it's identifying what's my strategy. And then it's putting science together around what does good look like? Well, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I have an EBITDA percent target. You know, I, I, I'm at 10%. I don't want to buy anything below 10% because it's going to drag down. It's it's not accretive. I want to buy stuff that's 12 to 15% or 17% because that rising tide is going to lift all boats. You mentioned personality of entrepreneur. Boy, there's two different ways to do a buy and build. There's buy and builds where the entrepreneurs stay, you know, and there's you know, buying builds where entrepreneurs go. What's the difference? <laughs> well, if you have a scalable platform as a, as, a, as a company, then the infrastructure that the entrepreneur brings, you know, probably isn't important. However, how the industry contracts is important. If it's relationship selling, if it's short-term contracts, you know, if people are doing business with you because as an entrepreneur, 
you were a man of your word, you know, a lady of your word, and they were great, you know, partners. And there's a relationship there that goes back to high school. I need that entrepreneur to stay because if they go, I'm going to lose the business. Mm -hmm. So personality plays a role. And I got to tell you that there's a lot of times, Ryan, where if I'm looking at a company, I may like the company and I think of the entrepreneur's personality and I think I'm not going to put a saddle on that guy. He's not going to join our team. He's not going to work with the other entrepreneurs, you know, or, or be a good mm -hmm. fit walk away, run. Mm -hmm. These aren't the droids you're looking for, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, 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 and what you, what it, what's so awesome about the conversations that you, you've been laying down here is that, so like in our training in the private, in the, the option or ex, excuse me, exit options is principle number three out of the five intentional growth principles. We walk through all the different ways to exit is it's literally this alignment, complete alignment discussion. We're like, in the private equity section, we're like, here are all the questions. And it's the same thing like with your playbook. Like, it's like, if the owners know what the hell they want and why from their money and from the vision, the vision of the business, all this stuff, they can at least align it with yours. Like, do these two puzzle pieces fit? And like, right. I would, I, what, what's awesome about, again, you've been so open about all these things. And I can only imagine it sounds like you were like that along the way of buying these companies is so often the private equity firms that are out trying to buy want it to be the black box so that way they can you know make these moves get the buy and then figure out how to deal with the you know the the calamity afterwards but like what we've always suggested is be unbelievably clear with what that with what the seller wants and then have the PE firm lay it all out like you've done in this episode right like so few people do that where if it was just quickly done then the owner can say well I could see myself fitting into that environment like Right now, I can only imagine, Adam, with people listening in, a chunk of people are going to go, ooh, that sounds like a very interesting environment that I would like to work in, or it could be my next stage. I could see a chunk going, you're never going to put a saddle on me, and that's not my right approach, but at least it's a good open discussion, right? And like the faster people can build that trust and get that clarity, I think it's trying to align the capital needs and the business needs and the personality needs all at the same time. Yeah, and you know, so you mentioned the, 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 the desire to be a black box. Keep in mind, I mean... The, 6,000 firms got a lot of money to put to work. And so the, they, they need to get the first deal. And, you know, they may be thinking, boy, if it doesn't work, I can bring in a new management team or I can bring someone in that does get it and then work with them. But got to get the first deal. So I don't want to add an additional hurdle that someone needs to clear, you know, that could prevent me from getting the deal. So there may be some of that go that goes on, you know, but again, you know, most of the private equity firms that I've worked with are filled with really good people, you know, and, and they, they do care about employees and they care about the businesses that they buy and they want to be good stewards, especially today. ESG has become such a huge component of limited partners concern when they're, they're putting capital to work. You know, they want to make sure they're investing it with people who are, are being good stewards you know, from an ESG perspective, from a, a DEI perspective, you know, and mm -hmm. and they want to be good stewards to employees and and to and so uh, most of the people I work with, I I would say fall in the category of these are good people who want to be successful. They're going to share success with you, but there are a lot of sharks out there. Well, you know, for lack of like a better word, it's the same thing with I just like using the example of realtors or business brokers or investment bankers. You're yeah. going to have the top echelon of the of the skills, and then you're going to have kind of everybody else in different spectrum of them. I just think that like because of how easy it is to start a PE firm these days, I mean, you and I could go raise a couple of 
you know, some, some money right now and start a firm and every, like, here's what I say. Hey, we should Ryan. Why aren't we? You know, I, I got people <laughs> yeah. calling me, offering me like 500 million to start an Adam coffee fund one, you know? And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, and I, I think it's so funny. Cause like when we're in our training, it's like, if you've seen one PE firm, you've seen one because everybody right. brings your different approach, which is the entire point where that you were just making is there's some good, there's a lot of good actors, a lot of bad actors, but you just, you've only seen one if you've seen one and in knowing what, what the sellers want and understanding how you, the PE firm operates and what their goals are, it's just goal alignment. And there, you get lower towards the end of the, the bottom of the market that are the PE firms that are now trying to roll up half a million dollar EBITDA companies. And that's where you're, you're getting into like real operational, you know, what people need to operate. It just, you start to get lower and then all of a sudden it gets a little bit less sophisticated and the amount of people I've said, it's easier to work with knowledgeable people, period. Knowledgeable sure. and experienced people, because then we can sit here and we're playing the same game. We're not arguing. Are we playing checkers or chess? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so going back to a buying build, you know, it, it's like, you know what, buy good companies. You, you find it. Don't, don't buy fixer uppers. That's not where you want to spend your time. If you're buying 20 or 30 companies, I've seen, you know, buying builds get derailed because of one bad choice, you know, one, one, one bad shiny penny. So know what good looks like up front. You're right. Not all PE firms are created equal. And you're going to find in any industry with 6,000 companies, you're going to find good, bad, and the ugly, right? Think mm -hmm. of house remodels. You know, some people do a great job and some people don't. Some people <laughs> take your deposit check and they ride off into the sunset. And so it's, you know, you know there, there are the gambit in any industry with 6,000 people in it. But generally speaking, I'd say, you know, I, I put some of that back on the entrepreneurs, the founders, the people who are transitioning. You got to do your homework. You don't wake up one day and say, okay, it's time to sell. I'm going to sell. And the first private equity guy gives me the most amount of money. You know, that's my partner. You know, that's not how life should work. You know, you, you, you need to do your homework and your research, you know, as a, a business owner before you take this kind of adventure and, uh, and, and start a journey like that. And when they don't put the time up front, that's where you, you know, as you said, you have an experienced set of one. It was either good or bad. And it was based on dumb luck because you didn't do the homework, you know, and. Amen. And, yeah. <laughs> you almost dropped the mic on that last comment. And, I, you know, as we're wrapping up here, Adam, what, what gets you so excited about this? I mean, you've got a ton of passion. You've been doing this for a long time. Like, wh why do you get so excited to wake up and, and do it every day? Well, I recently made a transition and a pivot. So, you know, the it was funny when I was younger, you couldn't get me to stay in a classroom. You know, when I got older, it's like the most rewarding work I do has been speaking to executive MBA classes, you know, at, at UCLA and, and, and Pepperdine and places like that. And, you know, it, it's really rewarding to me to work with multiple companies at a time. So after 21 years as a CEO, I told the world I'm no longer a CEO. You know, and of course, that's when CEO jobs come out of the sky. Oh, come <laughs> on. Yeah, you can do one more ride. Right. You know, it's like it was never about working less. For me, it was a pivot. You know, I'm convinced that I can work with multiple companies at a time, you know, as that active board member, you know, as a coach, as an advisor and really make a difference so that more of those people who make that choice, you know, to partner with private equity or work with private equity or sell a business, make it from a position of strength and from a, a, a level playing field where, you know, they get the best advice of someone who's been buying and selling companies for 21 years, you know, and I help them think through all those myriad of business decisions that, that have to be made 
you know, I help them get the right advisors, you know, and you, 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 you hire the investment bankers, the accountants, the lawyers, all the professionals that, that, that actually execute transactions. And then on the private equity side, it's taken 21 years worth of experience, but being the coach mentor to the founders so that there's a higher chance and probability of success because they paid too much for the company to begin with and they got to get out of the gates fast. And so I'm working with PE groups, I'm working with portfolio companies, I'm working with founders, but I'm working with multiple companies at a time. So what excites me in the morning, you know, that's the fun part of, of what I do. You know, and what I what I wasn't enjoying anymore was the minutia of being a CEO, you know, and all of the, the 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 stuff that goes with that. But I love the strategic part and the working with people and helping them think through complex issues and problems and developing strategy and then executing strategy. That's what gets me up in the morning and gets me excited. It's people. It's, it's never the business. You know, people say, how the hell can you be passionate about a laundry company? Well, well you can't. You know, everybody on the planet <laughs> has to do laundry. Nobody likes doing laundry. I'm passionate about the employees. I'm passionate awesome. about what we're doing and the journey that we're on, you know, as we're growing our business and taking care of employees and building cultures, you know, you can find a lot of things to be passionate about in any business. And if you don't have passion, you know, you need something else to do because, you know, you have to be able to articulate a vision, a shared vision, and you got to have passion about it. And if you don't have passion, your people aren't going to have passion. You know, we were talking about a a mutual friend of ours, you know, that that you ran into. Talk about passion and energy. Tommy Mello, shout out wherever you are in Phoenix. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, you got to have passion for what you're doing. Tommy's building the garage door company. Well, that's not sexy either. But boy, does he got passion for it. So <laughs> and you know, that, is, that, is, that is a truth. It's all about right people and passion. Adam, this has been an absolute blast. So uh, two final questions. One is because you're just talking about some of the things you're doing right now. Where can everybody reach you? So LinkedIn, you know, Adam Coffey, C-O-F-F-E-Y. Just do a search. You'll find me. You know, if you go to Amazon and type in Adam Coffey, you know, you'll find my books. Uh, I have a website. You can go to adamecoffee.com. Uh, or you can go to my, my company, my consulting business is called the is called CEO Advisory Guru. So CEO Advisory Guru.com, you know, will also get you to me. I love hearing from people. You know, I wrote my books. I'm hearing from people all over the globe. I've spent a lot of time, made a lot of friends, you know, and uh, it's been fun. So feel free to reach out. That's awesome, Adam. And then the last question is, I like to hear what people's definition of the word intentional is. It's the name of the show become uh, a very important word for me and our business and the people we're working with. So when you hear the word intentional, what does it mean to you? Uh, with purpose, purposeful. When I'm being intentional, I'm doing something for a specific reason to derive a specific outcome. And again, I'll go back to our very beginning. I'm a strategic planner. You know, the reason I get where I, I want to be is because I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going before, you know, I, I, boy, I, I've, I've taught this before. It's like, you get in a car, you tell somebody to drive and you don't tell them where and they're going (laughs) to drive around in circles. That's what most people do in life is they live their life going in circles. But if I tell you, get in a car and go to New York, you know, now you got a plan. I'm going to be gone for multiple days. I'm going to need to stop in between, or I'm going to need to supply a Red Bull if I'm going to go straight through, you know, and I'm, and I'm, someone's got to feed the cat, you know, and water the plants. And when I'm gone and get the mail, it's like, if you know where you're going in life, you can chart a course and you can get there, you know? So to me, intentional is with purpose, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's purposeful. 
I'm going to bottle that one up. That was perfect, Adam. Hey, thank you so much for coming on this show. This has been a blast. Nice to see you, Ryan. Thanks, and uh, I hope all your visitors uh, and, and listeners ha had a good time. Talk soon. So a little bit of a... <laughs> A little bit of deep dives into capital, capital structures, investments, and private equity. If your uh, eyes and ears and uh, brain and aren't bleeding all over the place, I hope you picked it up and you uh, learned a couple gold nuggets and feel more confident to have discussions with people that are from the private equity world or investment bankers because you at least know questions to ask because the more questions you ask, the more you will understand where they're coming from and how that aligns with your goals. If you need to clarify your goals, better understand the valuation that you want now and in the future and the exits that are right for you, as well as a complete deep dive into private equity, go check out the Intentional Growth Training, Arcona.io. You can do it yourself. You can hire me for four coaching calls as a, for private sessions, or you can join the upcoming in, uh, virtual peer group where we have a maximum of 10 participants that um, have a, the ability to go through the training together. And that starts in May. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and I will see you next week.